0: Welcome to the Kansas Reflector Podcast. Today we have a special edition looking back at some of the big storylines from 2021 and looking ahead to what we might expect in 2022. I have our senior reporter, Tim Carpenter, and our opinion editor, Clay Wirestone, here with me. I'm the editor-in-chief, Sherman Smith. Let's start with the tax battles that raged throughout the year in the legislature and in politics. Tim, why don't you start us off with the high points
1: yeah let's just look back at what kind of occurred and some of the major points in 2021 there's in kansas there's never any shortage of tax reform ideas and in the 2021 session the legislature pushed through a bill that uh brought big tax breaks to multinationals that bring foreign profits back to kansas it provided wealthy individuals an individual income tax break it increased the standard deduction for people kind of across the board by about 500 bucks uh governor kelly vetoed that bill because she thought it was bad fiscal medicine and then the legislature had a showdown and by two-thirds majority uh overrode her veto of that so that that legislation became law over here on the side on the tax front uh, genesis fitness club this big company that has dozens and dozens of fitness facilities in kansas and in six states tried to apply maximum pressure through contributions and uh, political swagger to try to get a special property tax break for for for-profit fitness clubs. And the Genesis people have tried this before, but they complain that the YWCAs, you know, the charitable uh, organization – is is ripping off the for-profit entities uh, because they get tax benefits. This time, the uh, proposal uh, ran off the rails because it was disclosed that Genesis was more than $500,000 in arrears on paying its existing property taxes. So even conservatives were just trying to carry water for Genesis. The the wind totally went out of the sails on that, and sadly, uh, the Genesis will just have to uh, pay their taxes uh, in the in the near future, so that's kind of what 2021 looked like.
0: Maybe worth pointing out, this multinational tax break is something that the legislature has been trying to do since the 2018 session, and the governor had vetoed that every year since she's been in office since 2019.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the broader uh, context that you have to look at here is that taxes have really been one of the major forces in Kansas politics for the better part of the last decade. Uh, since former Governor Sam Brownback's tax experiment, quote-unquote, in the early 20-teens, that Experiment uh, went very badly, and probably contributed in some degree to uh, Laura Kelly's victory uh, as governor in 2018. And really, as you as you mentioned, Sherman, these last two or three years have seen Governor Kelly, in some ways, being the conservative, being very reluctant to change the state's tax structure, and Republicans in the Senate and the House being more aggressive to try to change them. Um, she'd rebuffed them for a, a couple of years, but then, yes, this last session. They they finally got through
1: this is Tim again and, and let's let's take a quick uh, look forward into the 2022 session uh, there is a ton of money in the state Treasury just sitting there and and there's a bunch of political people who want to uh, spend it in various ways on tax breaks or or uh, on our programs but governor Kelly's tried to get ahead of Excuse me. Governor Kelly's tried to get ahead of this train and proposed a complete elimination of the state's 6.5% sales tax on food. It should be noted that Kansas has one of the most egregious taxes on groceries uh, in the nation. Um, so, just a bit of background on this: In 2013, the rate had been temporarily increased to 6.3%, and was supposed to fall back to 5.7. But Brownback needed that money to help fill the budget. So he worked a deal with his GOP allies to keep it at 6.15%. So it was at 6.3, was supposed to go back to 5.7. Nope, instead it's going to stay at 6.15%. And then in 2015, Brownback needed even more money, so they pushed the sales tax up to 6.5% where it is right now.
0: The climate has changed so significantly since then because we're actually looking at something like a $2 billion surplus if nothing changes right now. And the food sales tax has almost universal support for getting rid of this. Uh, The governor's likely opponent next in this 2022 governor's race, uh, Attorney General Derek Schmidt, has also embraced getting rid of the food sales tax. Uh, but there's, I think, lingering questions about what else could be attached to that and, and the governor wanting what she calls a clean bill. Clay?
2: Well, and it's, it's not an insubstantial amount of money. I mean, the, the food sales tax alone is $400 billion a year, and that's one of the reasons why this hadn't happened before then, before I, this. I
0: believe you mean $400 million.
2: Yeah, we wish it oh, was sorry. $400 sorry. Billion, sorry. But you're right. In excess of $400 million
1: a year in food sales tax is what we're talking about here, and that's why it was never reduced before. It generates so much money for the Treasury that it was hard for people to, to surrender it. One other idea that Governor Kelly has thrown out there is a, the idea of just simply a tax revenue rebate of $250 a person. Over a million people would be eligible for this, and it's a one-time expenditure of, we'll say, about $450 bucks. And um, the reaction to that from the Republican legislative leadership was not rosy. They, they, they would like to get their fingerprints on tax reform ideas that don't have anything to do with Laura Kelly's proposals, I think.
0: And I think there's some question about whether or not Republicans in the legislature would like to go further in tax cuts for businesses.
1: Right, right. So so just to close out the tax issue, there's going to be a lot of intrigue in 2022. You'll see some things that you're familiar with and probably some ideas that are a bit novel that only come along once in a
2: blue moon. Or once in an election season.
0: Well let's talk about the uh the maybe the biggest story of our lifetimes now the the COVID-19 pandemic which is now entering closing in at the end of its second year dominating news again throughout the year we had over 4000 Kansans died this year alone even after vaccines were widely available more than 7000 Kansans now have died since the virus was first detected here in March of 2020 you know, when the year began, we saw a lot of heartburn over the way the vaccines were being rolled out, whether or not the Kansas Department of Health and Environment was doing that efficiently. At some point, this kind of transitioned away from how, how available the vaccines were to a lot of unrest over whether people should be forced to take the vaccine, kind of culminating in a special session toward the end of the year in November, where the, the legislature passed a, a law which was embraced quickly by Governor Laura Kelly uh, that basically gives you a pass on any federal mandate requiring you to have a, a COVID-19 vaccine for work. It gives a, a liberal definition of, of a religious exemption so that you can, you can claim a religious exemption even on kind of moral grounds. Uh, you can also claim unemployment benefits if you, uh, if you end up losing your job over this. In between there, we just saw a lot of, uh, you know, frankly, inaccurate and crazy things said about vaccines, which we know are safe and effective.
2: Yeah, well, I would go even further than that and say that this was egregious. I mean, it was incredible, incredibly egregious, outrageous to see the kind of blatant falsehoods that were shared you know, not just by random lunatics coming up to testify at the state house, but by legislators themselves, and not just in one hearing, not just in two, but repeatedly, um, kind of over the summer and and into the fall, um, and. Just to be really clear, because I'm, I'm trying to bring a little bit of good news to this uh, this year end podcast, the, the vaccines against covid, even with the Omicron variant, they're truly amazing. The CDC uh, released some data just this month showing that for infections, uh, unvaccinated folks have four hundred and fifty one cases per one hundred thousand people. If you are vaccinated and boosted, there are forty eight cases per one hundred thousand people. Vaccines also basically eliminate the risk of dying from COVID. Again, the unvaccinated folks have 6.1 deaths per 100,000 people, while people who are fully vaccinated and boosted have only 0.1 deaths per 100,000 people. I mean, these vaccines, uh, you know, I I don't want to to echo former president Trump too much in his recent pro vaccine tour, but they really are uh, amazing achievements. And, and frankly, Also in Kansas, I don't want us to lose fact to the fact that more than 70% of Kansans over the age of five have received at least one dose of the vaccine. Um, More people need to get their second dose, more people need to be boosted, but actually a very robust majority of Kansans have been vaccinated. Folks who are anti-vaxxers are a decided
0: minority. About two-thirds of the Kansas adults are fully vaccinated. You know, we saw this this incredible surge in cases and hospitalizations and deaths with the Delta variant in uh, really July through October. Um, you know, this is a variant that was far more contagious than the original form of COVID-19. Uh, we now have a a variant, the Omicron variant, which is even more contagious than that, but seems to have lesser effects. But a small percentage of a large number is still a large number. So in You have even less than 1% of the people are getting seriously ill or dying from this. We're still talking about dozens of people, uh, sometimes on a daily basis. And this is having a compounding effect on the hospital system where not only are they fatigued from fighting this for two years, but they have a backlog of patients who are trying to get surgeries done. Now they're being overwhelmed once again with COVID patients and having to send people home who need medical care, but, but they just can't provide it to them.
1: This is Tim, and I. I, There's a couple elements of this COVID thing. There was a huge controversy about unemployment benefits, and to be sure, the Kansas Department of Labor got overwhelmed early in this pandemic and got buried with requests for resources. I think to a large measure, they've sort of straightened that out. They they were being tugged around by Congress, who kept throwing uh, federal programs at Kansas. Some states didn't have the computer systems to really handle
0: it. The last big thing to mention is that we have a new KDHE secretary. Uh, Lee Norman was the secretary uh, at the start of the pandemic. He had uh, credentials for dealing with pandemics uh, or outbreaks of deadly viruses. Uh, but he became kind of uh, politically caustic as he antagonized legislators on Twitter, um, became kind of the, the the person most frequently in the crosshairs for, for aggressively promoting the science of wearing masks, and getting the vaccine. And then his tendency to say things that were kind of politically caustic, uh, particularly on public briefings, got him in uh, hot water with some some of the the inner staff of the governor's office and ultimately led to him being fired in November.
2: I mean, I think uh, for a lot of the kind of liberal commentariat uh, as the two or three of them that there are in kansas it came as a surprise uh, given that lee norman had become at least in the early months of the pandemic kind of a slightly warmer and fuzzier kansas version of anthony fauci but i think there is a point at which governor kelly's staff decided that they were going to try to figure out a way to deal with COVID that was very forward-looking, that was not as much about lockdowns or restrictions or mandates as much as it was about economic development and how we rebuild and how we move forward. And at that point, I think they felt like their messaging and what was coming out of uh, the KDHE secretary's mouth was not always the same thing. And so they decided to move in a different direction.
0: He was fired as I was preparing to report on the emails I obtained in which the, the chief of staff to Governor Kelly, Will Lawrence, uh, had basically instructed him to stop making public appearances altogether, uh, had expressed frustration with him not being able to stay in his lane and just address the science and, and not get baited into Answering these more politically charged questions, uh, Norman It kind of Doesn't matter what you ask him, he's going to give you an answer on it.
2: And make no mistake, people who are in the journalistic community enjoy folks like that very much. We we wish there were more of them. Uh, people who are in the political uh, community find them a little harder to deal with.
0: Let's move on to the next topic, which is abortion and an amendment that could dramatically change. the the way this is governed in Kansas.
1: Yeah, so on August 2nd, Kansas primary voters will decide whether women have a right to abortion under the Kansas Constitution. There's a proposed amendment, and it's a response by the Kansas legislature to a 2019 decision by the Kansas Supreme Court. In that case, the majority found the state's Bill of Rights included a right to bodily autonomy. Layman's translation is, women can get an abortion in Kansas. But if the amendment passes... It will mean nothing in the state constitution offers women that right to an abortion. And all laws on the subject will be made by the anti-abortion legislature. So it's going to be interesting to see how how the vote turns out in the August primary.
0: A couple of uh, points on this, and I'll, I'll throw it to you, Clay. One is this date was chosen deliberately because it's a date where... Uh, Anybody can vote on the amendment, but typically the the turnout is just the registered Republicans and registered Democrats, and the registered Republicans hold an enormous advantage here. Um, The other thing is the state Supreme Court carved out a protection for abortion specific to the state constitution, and that means that even if the federal Supreme Court were to strike down Roe v. Wade, as they very well could uh, before August, there would still be this protection under the state constitution depending on the outcome of this vote
2: yeah and and sherman you're you're just touching on what's the huge uh kind of second layer of this story which is the supreme court uh earlier this month uh held arguments in the case dobbs versus jackson women's health organization it's a case out of mississippi uh and it looks like there is a likely majority on the U.S. Supreme Court to uphold this Mississippi law, which would essentially overturn abortion jurisprudence, abortion law in the United States, both Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which basically says that you can't um, limit abortion uh, before fetal uh uh, until after fetal viability, which is about 24 weeks, uh, Mississippi set their limit at 15 weeks. Uh, and pretty much once you say that fetal viability isn't the, the, the limit, then you know who knows where states may up may end up uh, setting that, that limit. At the same time, you have a law coming out of Texas where they set uh, limits on abortion after six weeks. Uh, And in Texas, uh, actually, there's kind of a bounty hunter situation where enforcement of the law is left up to private organizations or individuals who then, uh, you know, file civil cases. So both of these things are in the mix. The Supreme Court's ruling uh, on that Mississippi case is expected by the summer. So literally, you could be having this vote in Kansas uh, while the entire framework for legalized abortion in the United States uh, has disintegrated. Um, so it's, it's going to be very intense. And depending on what happens in the vote here in Kansas, that then could really affect what happens in the governor's race in the fall as well.
1: just want to make two quick points. The, the terminology used by the Supreme Court refers to bodily autonomy. And I find it quite ironic that a lot of the anti-vaxxers who don't want to have mandates on masks, mass and vaccinations and so forth also use the term bodily autonomy. But the irony is, is that the people who don't want a vaccination uh, based on bodily autonomy want to they want to stop abortion and want to stop abortion based on bodily autonomy. So just irony in that Kansans for Life chose the August primary date uh, because they think, as Sherman said, that this is their best opportunity to win. And they're arguing that uh, they need to win to protect the 20 or so abortion restriction laws that are on the books. The skeptics of this amendment say that it's just plain wrong to place human rights up for a popular vote. Uh, the whim of the voters of whoever shows up at the ballot box in August.
0: There's a set of dominoes here that, that could fall where the, the federal Supreme Court strikes down Roe v. Wade voters in august decide that there's no protection for abortion in the state constitution and then it it clears the path for the state to make abortion illegal and that would make the governor's race perhaps a referendum on this issue in november
2: and to also be clear when this uh, amendment was being voted on last session This was what advocates of the amendment said explicitly wasn't going to happen. It was, oh, we're just going to whatever the federal laws are, whatever the federal limits are. But, I mean, actually, this is all part of a coordinated strategy, in my opinion, that you see in in Kansas and nationally uh, that ultimately could limit uh, abortion access quite severely.
0: Let's move on to our next topic, which is an issue that I try to follow closely here in Kansas, which is the foster care system. And it's been a another busy year for uh, for issues related to foster care in Kansas. In January of 2021, the state reached a settlement with Appleseed, Kansas Appleseed Center for, for Law and Justice. And the significance of that is the state now is, is going to be required – By a federal judge to meet certain benchmarks within the foster care system, they're going to have to make improvements uh, in, you know, how often children are moved from one location to the next, um, other metrics along those lines. Uh, But there are a lot of issues in in foster care. There's the the need for a child advocate that Kansas Appleseed and others have pushed for several years, Uh, finally moved to a point where a House committee advanced this bill that would have created a child advocate that would report directly to the legislature. And the idea is that they could issue reports on how the foster care system is doing, and anybody who has concerns or complaints about what's happening in the foster care system on behalf of these children could go to the child advocate, and they would have unique powers to investigate. Uh, And the idea is to keep this separate from the the governor's administration, which also oversees the foster care system so that you would have an independent voice. Uh, The Senate then came in with a competing plan that would have placed the child advocate directly under the attorney general, and that was seen as this kind of politically motivated idea where the attorney general could use this as a weapon to embarrass the governor during an election campaign, uh, knowing that those two would be facing off this year. So that imploded the entire debate. They couldn't agree on anything and it died until the governor then a couple months ago decided she would create this with the stroke of her pen and place the child advocate directly under her administration, under the Department of Administration, uh, which angered a lot of legislators because now you have a child advocate who's reporting directly to the governor on what the governor's system is doing wrong. Uh, and I think, you know, right now Republicans are are crying foul. I think if we had a a different governor than Democrats would be crying foul, uh, and it's an issue that's going to have to be resolved in this upcoming session, I believe. Uh, we also had uh, a lot more information revealed about the the depth of uh, financial misconduct or mismanagement at St. Francis Ministries. That's the largest foster care provider in Kansas. Late last year, we learned that the, the former CEO, Robert Smith, had... Uh, been accused of using his uh, company credit card for a lot of personal expenses and making a lot of risky investments. More information came out recently in a state of Kansas audit that that confirmed what other investigative reports have found, which is that you know he he funneled ten million dollars or more to. Uh, An acquaintance who was running an IT development system that never really materialized in the way they thought it would, actually crashed and wiped out their financial records. Uh, He had also kind of funneled some cash to his wife running an operation in El Salvador. He spent tens of thousands of dollars on Chicago Cubs tickets in the scheme to try to uh, scalp them on the secondary market and make a profit. And then just hundreds of thousands of dollars in personal expenses on first-class air flights, yeah, traveling to Ireland and England and places that had no, no apparent business purpose, uh, spending money on everything from his local liquor purchases to limousines to iTunes purchases, uh, video streaming you name it. Um,
1: Sherman, if I could just interrupt there. My level of outrage after just listening to you to recite the facts of how the privatized foster care system in Kansas is screwed up, it is just an outrage. The, The state of Kansas takes these kids. They are wards of the state. We owe it to these children to do it right. And it doesn't really matter to me whether it's privatized, I guess, or run by a state agency. This must be done right. And the thing that always puzzles me is why politicians don't care enough about it.
0: To so that point, you know, the state of Nebraska recently canceled the contract with St. Francis because their performance has been so bad in Nebraska. But if you actually look at their their performance in Nebraska and compare it to Kansas, they're, they're doing worse in Kansas in terms of caseloads and some of the other metrics that you can judge them on. Um, Caseloads, meaning the the number of children who are assigned to each social worker, and it's curious to me that there's extraordinary outrage in Nebraska that would force them to cancel the contracts. and in Kansas there doesn't seem to be that comparative outrage.
2: Well, and, and Sherman and I have have talked about this, Tim, and it I mean it just it seems as though foster care is this long running, you know, it is a long running sore. In Kansas government, and both part neither party necessarily manages it well when it's in power. Or you know that the system was privatized under Governor Bill Graves, a, a moderate Republican, um, and no one has necessarily clothed themselves in glory. Through great management of the foster care system, and it's and you know it gets worse at sometimes, it get mod- gets modestly better at others, and yet there continue to be these issues. The party, you know, parties continually use it as a as a political, you know, football to or or way to attack one another. But as you say, Tim, where's the actual outrage to just do the thing to make it better? You know, yeah, once these are children
1: all. that need our help, the money's there to do it. Even if it va- requires vastly more amounts of money, the money's there. you know. If they just really uh, do what they say, which is to care about children in need, they'll do something in 2022 very substantial. But the test is, is what the legislators
0: come back and do. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll be curious to see if they act on changes in autism services, because one of the cases that I wrote about this year involved an autistic boy who... Uh, he was with foster parents, um, was being adopted to parents in another part of the state. The foster parents said, these these guys who want to adopt this child are not prepared to handle somebody who needs such intensive care, somebody uh, who has such behavioral issues um, with with autism. Uh, but they ultimately, all of their, their complaints, their concerns were ignored by DCF, by St. Francis, by others. Um They had to hand the child over, and two months later, DCF called to say, uh, that's the Department for Children and Families, called to say, uh, the child has actually died now. He was um, found uh, basically with uh, a lot of bruises and, and cuts in a bathtub in Wichita, and we need you to bury him, which was a stunning revelation for the foster parents to hear that this child that they had cared for for years had had died and, and they were being asked not the the parents who, had, who were trying to adopt him but, but they were being asked to to bury the child and, and as i looked at this it became apparent to me that there was a widespread systematic failure to provide autistic to provide the services that autistic children need in kansas uh, actually both inside and outside of the foster care system but especially in foster care where you have children who are moving from place to place, and it's difficult to connect them with these services. Those services are not provided widely in Kansas because the funding isn't there for them, even though the the University of Kansas has a operation that trains people to, to provide autism services. It's internationally recognized, but we're just not investing in it. Uh, the, the secretary at the Department for Children and Families, Laura Howard, following that story, asked the Kansas Health Institute to bring a bunch of stakeholders together, analyze this issue, and come up with solutions that she can take to the legislature in a couple of weeks to address this problem. We'll see what happens with that.
2: I mean, to me, Sherman, and I'm saying this personally as a parent, you know, it's difficult to imagine something that would be more traumatic to a child, you know, than being removed from his or her family. Like, that is an enormous step to make. It's something that you can only imagine the, the ramifications that would have for a kid, not just in the short term, but for, you know, decades, a lifetime to come. And so, to me, what that means is that those folks who run the foster care system, they have so much responsibility for what happens to kids who have no power, absolutely powerless kids. And the fact that there are oversights or, you know, kind of systemic issues of the kind that you mentioned, it just leaves you aghast.
0: Moving on to the the next topic. Let's talk about medical marijuana and uh, the the prospects for passing, making this legal. Kansas may no longer be an island here.
1: Yeah, so Kansas has kicked the idea around for quite a while about uh, legalizing medicinal uses of marijuana. Dozens of states have already adopted these laws and pretty soon Kansas is gonna be surrounded by states on all four sides that do this. Uh, so the uh, in the 2021 session, the Kansas House passed a bill that would have legalized medical marijuana it's, it's quite limiting, more limiting than I think than a number of states. It, would, it identified 22 ailments for which you could get uh, this product, included things like PTSD and cancer, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, that kind of thing. And it prevented the smoking of marijuana or the vaping of marijuana, so you'd have to take it in other forms. So it passed the House 79 to 42, bipartisan majority, and the Senate uh, just put it on idle and presumptively will take it up in the 2022 session. I think the medical marijuana lobby spent a lot of money. Uh, to try to get this on the front burner in the House. And perhaps that's what the Senate's waiting for, is their slice of the pie uh, before they'll take it up. But I think it's quite popular. There's various polls out there that say, you know, what, two-thirds of the Kansas population uh, would endorse the notion of medical marijuana. And uh, so I think in the general public it's popular. I think the resistance comes from law enforcement and and from legislators Who have spent their entire careers fighting drugs, you know, and just I I, when I think about this idea, I think about police officers who have spent the last 25 years of their life throwing Kansans in jail for having small amounts of pot illegally having small amounts of pot. And, you know, there's nothing like a felony on your record to destroy your life. So I think if I was a cop and suddenly Kansas flipped that switch and made it legal, that would be very hard to swallow, and I'd have a little bit of trouble sleeping at night. So I think that's part of the dynamics of this. But other states have made the transition. There's no reason Kansas can't as well.
0: I remember watching the the debates in the House on this, and we saw some of the, the most conservative legislators get up and explain, you know, I, I've talked to my constituents. They really, really want this. Uh, so I'm uneasy, but I'm going to vote for this.
2: Yeah, I mean, I Tim, you mentioned the polling. I'm pretty sure that the polling about two-thirds of Kansas is, Kansans is not just about me- medical marijuana, but it's just, in general, legalization of cannabis, which is actually backed up by Gallup did a poll that came out last month that was nationwide. It was almost exactly the same. 68% of Americans support full legalization. That's 83% of Democrats, 50% of Republicans. I mean, it's just very popular, and I can't think... You know, during the time that I've been following politics of another issue outside of perhaps same sex marriage where you've seen there's a big popular swing in opinion. It's not just among younger people. It's also among, you know, middle aged, older, older folks. And it's because Kansans, you know, they see what's happening in Colorado. They see what's happening in other states. They know that uh, pot is available and, and legal in a lot of other places. And, you know, and the, the world hasn't ended in those other places, too. So, I mean, I think there's actually a big political opportunity for someone as, you know, some big benefits for whoever can actually get this across the finish line. Mm-hmm. should be mentioned that
1: Governor Kelly said she'd sign such a bill if, it, if, uh, if it, she I think she used the term reasonable, uh, that she would sign a bill. And, and you're right I, about the uh, recreational use of marijuana. You know, that's a big step for some even conservative Republicans but the public is asking for this, and if these politicians are going to listen to their constituents, they'll vote a certain way. You
0: know, the governor at, at one point had proposed legalizing marijuana to pay for Medicaid expansion, and I think it's an interesting political dynamic. If the Senate fails to, to make this into law, the governor is on the record supporting legalization of, of marijuana in, in some capacity. That would benefit her in a gubernatorial campaign where Derek Schmidt may be as a the chief law enforcement officer in Kansas maybe is a little less enthusiastic about it. We have one one more topic to discuss here, and that's critical race theory, which kind of feels like the, the
1: or what's referred to as critical exactly. race theory. It's you know we we think it's something else.
0: I going to say it feels like the flavor of the month uh, sort of political weapon uh, to to mobilize a. You know, base of voters who, who tend to vote for Republicans reminds me of the defund the police movement a couple uh, years ago, actually just last year, um, where Republicans seized on uh, this uh, this kind of a key phrase. You know, I think if you talk to the average person inside or outside of the, the state house, they would would struggle to define critical race theory, but it basically, as as you say to them, has come to mean. Anything that conservative people don't like, white conservative people <laughs> particularly don't like. Not exclusively white. Representative Patrick Penn, a black legislator from Wichita, has been a champion for banning critical race theory. Uh, he and others have proposed uh, introducing legislation that would make it illegal to teach critical race theory in public schools. Of course, critical race theory is not being taught in public schools.
2: Can you? One of you guys want to define that? So. I believe I looked this up before before the, the podcast today. I believe in its formal definition, critical race theory is a college-level framework of understanding how racial disparities are perpetuated in the legal system. And so, in other words, by various laws or various kind of institutional structures that may not say— You know, black people can't do this; only white people can do this. But through other kind of subtler ways, um, enshrine discrimination. And so it's kind of a high level theory in that way uh, that has then been, you know, just those initials CRT. People don't even say the full critical race theory a lot these days. Have just become kind of an initialism, you know, used to mean whatever you like.
1: Don't what we're talking about here. I think is that there's a belief. That racism has become part of the superstructure of American society, and we're not the only country that has this problem. And I think what some people are asserting is we shouldn't be focusing in our public schools uh, about our, our the racist past in America, the racism of today. Uh, allegedly, it's making kids uh, disturbing their mental health. Um, I think there's nothing better than talking about it in schools and in coffee shops and churches and anywhere else to see if we can maybe talk our way through these racial problems and get over this massive hump.
0: The way it's described in a, a couple of hearings here recently by legislators, you know, I, I just have a hard time reconciling the way they talk about critical race theory as they think it's happening in public schools with what is actually happening in public schools. We heard Representative Christy Williams, a Republican from Augusta, say, you know, there are children who are being told that you're either the oppressed or the oppressor. And she says, you know, just think of this poor little white girl who's being told that she's responsible for all the bad things that happen to black people. And I that, that is just absolutely not how this is being framed in, in public schools.
1: It could be true that uh, quacks are selling curriculum to schools to to, to, you know, to figure out a way to talk about public education and racism. Uh, it could be true that there's some quirky uh, presentations going on in classrooms, but that does not say let's stop talking about race as a very important element of the history of this country and, and the way that
2: people ought to go about learning. I think there's also a broader point here, which is, I think conservative activists saw that there was a lot of frustration over school closures and hybrid learning during the pandemic, those early pandemic months in 2020 and kind of throughout the 2020-2021 school year. And, you know, there was a lot of parental frustration about why can't my kid be in school? I feel like my kid's falling behind academically. And yet at the same time, it's kind of hard to say, well, you know, I want my kid to get sick or, you know, whatever. So you can then say, well, what I'm really concerned about is, is what they're learning, is these weird concepts that are being introduced. When I think a lot of that foundational frustration that was driving some of this, again, was that response of public schools to the pandemic in those initial stages.
0: We heard complaints from parents specific to LGBTQ issues Right. They, were, they were upset that students were, were being taught about uh, gender identification and mm-hmm. um, some of the books that had LGBTQ scenes in them were, were being challenged. And this is being bottled up and sold as critical race theory.
1: So it could be a theory that this is, you know, when you talk about if you can go and, and just yell CRT and get a bunch of people to have a bunch of images pop into their head, none of which they like, uh, that this is an effective political maneuver. So that would be uh, the notion that, that some of this has is really grounded in political uh, vote moving.
0: We saw the, the Republican Party uh, support a number of school board candidates, which is somewhat uh, unusual to see in a, an election year like this. And it, it certainly was effective. It was almost like a test balloon to see how effective critical race theory could be. And we saw a lot of school board candidates who I think in in past years would have been uh, seen as as long shots who won easily.
2: And former Trump advisor Steve Bannon has actually been very vocal on his podcast and encouraging people not just to run and um, win, you know, kind of small-bore local election-style races, but to actually run for school board and to see that as kind of the next frontier in kind of a broader political-cultural battle.
0: It's hard to believe that we're so close to the start of another legislative session. It begins January 10th. We'll be there to cover everything that's going on. Thank you for listening.